Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Douglas Kellner, a distinguished research professor of education at UCLA and author of many books on social theory, politics, history, philosophy, and culture, including Herbert Marcuse and the Crisis of Marxism and six edited volumes of his collected papers. Kellner's work in social theory and cultural studies includes Media Culture, Guys and Guns Amok, Media Spectacle, American Nightmare, and the American Horror Show on the Presidency of Donald Trump, followed by Technology and Democracy with Jeff Scher, the Critical Media Literacy Guide, Engaging Media and Transforming Education. I welcome Douglas Kellner to Savage Minds. I've been a huge fan of your work for many years since I was in graduate school. As an early theorist in the field of media literacy, I never thought that here we would be today, decades after you helped form this field, no longer the 1970s of broadcast television, no more the seeming paradise to many of cable TV, which dominated the last two decades of the 20th century. And now today we're in this world that makes look quite facile the past because here we are now having surpassed i guess that phase of the early knots of internet chat forums major media comment sections of the 90s and knots to this vast erasure by corporate media of reader response that i noticed around 9 11. i remember a lot of things happening right before one of which was cnn started to stop allowing commenting on its website over what was happening in Davos. I thought, hmm, this is odd. And then 9-11 happened and other sections of CNN started shutting down comments there as well. And it seems that over the course of your work in this field, that we are light years away in many respects from what you were writing about in critical theory and culture industries as the patina of culture today involves the user being part of this mechanism of a simulacra of cultural democracy, where in many respects, politicians can point to the internet and say, see, it's free and available to everyone. People can, in some countries, have help paying for their internet bills or their computers. It looks all quite democratic, Douglas. Yes. But at the end, there are so many problems that your work has become this bedrock for many people today making very astute media criticism of what's wrong with major media today. And I'm wondering if you could speak about what has changed since you started in this field and even started the field of media literacy. Well, the biggest change was in the 1990s. In the mid-90s, where you had cable, TV, and the internet hitting at uh, once. So the internet appeared that this was this radical democratization of technology that everyone could do a blog. Everyone could send emails out, you know, to whatever lists they were on, uh, et cetera. Um, but it turns out, of course, that the corporations, both in terms of the internet and cable television, pretty much took over. So uh, particularly cable television, uh, which in the mid-1990s had uh, three uh, cable networks in the United States. One, uh, Fox News was straight out right-wing, CNN was centrist, and MSNBC, to everyone's surprise, 
became increasingly left-wing and to this day is associated with sort of a left populism in the Democratic uh, Party. CNN, by the way, has rapidly gone to the right in the last uh, days. They have a new corporate uh, ownership and um, they've already fired some of their better people and uh, it's just pathetic now how uh, CNN has stopped, you know, its critiques of Trump. It fawns over the Queen of England and, you know, <laughs> nothing but monarchism, you know, in the last uh, uh, weeks. But we still have uh, MSNBC and the Internet is just totally fragmented. Uh, I optimistically, when the Internet emerged in the 1990s, saw this as a venue for progressive uh, voices. And to some extent, it has, as you work, exemplifies Toby Miller's and others. You can do podcasts. You can use the Internet for, you know, progressive uh, goals. A lot of my students have done YouTube activism, but still it's corporate media that uh, continues to control the uh, overwhelming amount of the uh, media landscape. Yes, and it's quite disturbing how corporate media and big tech have teamed up right. over the past. And I'd say, honestly, 9-11 sort of marks this moment for me where I began to see a lot of things happening that I perhaps had been unaware of before. But, you know, we saw the embedding of reporters. Let's begin with that. And then skip to today, where if you shared the New York Post piece about the Hunter Biden laptop, you could have lost your account. Some people did. And you pointed to MSNBC, and I'll tell you something. I remember when they started because I knew someone who went out to Seattle from Brooklyn where I was living in the 90s to work for them. And it seemed like a really good prospect, this new media entity. But then skip to Russiagate, skip to a lot of denial around the Hunter Biden laptop. <laughs> and I begin to sort of quake, wondering, have we lost objectivity for partisanship? Because MSNBC is one of those places yes. that's become hyper-partisan. And, right. and Douglas... Don't kill me. But after 9-11, I was apoplectic whenever someone would mention Fox News or I caught wind of Fox News. But I'll tell you something. <laughs> During lockdown, Fox News was the only major media minimally caring about and talking about workers and workers' rights. And I was a bit shocked by this because I'm not a fan. I mean, I'm very far to the left, certainly much more than even the average, let's say, MSNBC viewer. I was a bit shocked by the fact that all of these corporate media entities were not really covering things fairly. There was very little criticism about what lockdown meant for workers, the Drama class seemed to feature predominantly. It was always cheering, whether it was the NHS workers clapping for them and the BBC fell in line with that, to similar performances in the United States and Canada. But there was very little questioning. In fact, there was a lot of gavel banging around, if you recall recently, what the truckers along the American border in Canada did. I remember CNN was going up to one truck driver and they asked him, why he was a racist. And he looked at them and he said, I'm black. So we had this whole posturing of, if you said no to lockdown, and we saw this all throughout ABC in Australia and what happened in the draconian lockdown in Melbourne, there was a lot of thumping down 
any kind of questioning. You mentioned the royal proceedings these last 10 days. People couldn't even critique that very easily, but there was a moment, I caught this on Sky the other day by chance, they actually had a freedom of speech moment. I was really impressed, but that's gone away. It didn't happen any time yesterday or today that I noticed. And we're not seeing any kind of balance in the media. Like, would Watergate have ever been exposed if it were to happen today? Sometimes I wonder, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I would say yes, just because MSNBC is fanatically anti-Republican, anti-Trump. Uh, you know, so it's total partisanship has taken over. And that is, you know, good in the sense that at least you get both sides, but bad in that, uh, you know, you don't get critiques, you know, rational critiques of all sides. You know, the internet is better in this sense because there's just so many voices on the internet. It's practically any position, you know, you can find. Mm -hmm. yeah. there's, there's sharp critiques of Biden. Uh, for instance, on progressive internet sites, whereas MSNBC hardly ever attacks or even critiques uh, Biden, etc. You know, there are two sides to this. Well, the internet today, especially with social media, maybe we should focus on social media. It has this pattern of being very all representative. If you're on there, your voice will be heard. But that's not actually what happens. There's a lot of moments over the last decade I've seen where women have been kicked off of Twitter and Facebook for saying right. that lesbians don't have penises. I'm, I'm not joking either. Right. And there's a whole movement now of feminists who've been speaking out about their rights to protest, let's say, gender identity. Now, it's one thing to take a line and say, I disagree that lesbians don't have penises or that men cannot be women. But what's happened is that Jack, you know, at Jack on Twitter and all of the Facebook higher management have sort of fallen in line with the idea that what you say you are will defend and we will kick off people who say that what you are, they do not see you as. And it's very strange because the internet went from, remember in the nineties when we were all very happy to stop queuing at the post office and we were like, yay, we can just pop off this quick message to someone to now, if you do not agree that people are like Nemo and that people can't change sex and somehow you do risk, I myself have had this happen, you risk having your account suspended for 24 hours a week, you get all sorts of threats to have your account permanently disabled and many people have. So we're in this very strange paradox where the internet Lanier said it would be the space of absolute liberalization at one point, but he's gone back on that. And I think a lot of people who foresaw the internet as this space of democratization have seen where there are loopholes and pitfalls. So I'm thinking of, in terms of what you call multiple technoliteracies, in the article that you co-authored with Richard Kahn, Reconstructing Technoliteracy, you both refer to a movement that would involve people who would be, as you wrote, actively transform mainstream understandings, policies, and practices of techno-literacy through politicization and the hegemonic norms that currently pervade social trains. Now, one would say, this sounds great, but the problem with social media specifically, and not all of the internet, that social media has become this space that seems to function depending on the narrative. And if you're 
you can be easily persona non grata and have your presence removed. Right. And then the attempts to create competitors to Twitter or Facebook have pretty much failed because according to some people, those entities have become their own monopolies. And of course, you look at the right wing explanation for that, and that's, well, they're private companies, they can do what they want, they can make the rules they want. But the reality is that the monopoly has already happened. Right. It's very hard to compete with them. In fact, I joined a few places that have already folded because they're finding it extremely hard to bring the public square virtually in competition with them. So we're in a real catch 22 here. Right. No, there's no question about this, that the early promise that the Internet was going to uh, give voice to all ran up against the contradiction that you just pointed out in your examples, that is owned by big corporate corporations. And they're becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. So that Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, etc., they're all they all have private ownerships and they all do censorship according to arbitrary rules depending on the predilections or you know, and it's often that they they do allow certain kinds of political discourse, but other kinds as you just indicated, they don't allow. So, uh, you know, there's no question that uh, the biggest problem with uh, internet, with communications period, continues to be corporate ownership. It just takes different forms decade by decade. Sometimes it's invisible um, and then sometimes it just kicks in and it's, you know, really obvious. It's made me think a lot about what the responses to this are. For instance, I've spent the last 10 years covering various topics, but one of them is the topic I just mentioned on the gender identity movement. Right. And the bizarre thing about this is since I've been involved in this, I was one of the only journalists in, in England writing about it at the time because this gender identity lobby, as it were, was very successful in threatening journalists reaching out to their editors, threatening their way of living, their means of living, their economy. And this has been something that has been rinsed and repeated over various other narratives. And the thing that has really struck me is that since this movement has been more and more exposed, other journalists have jumped in the river and gotten themselves involved in this, death threats and all, is that now I've witnessed a plethora of one issue publications that are taking on only that, where in fact, one must question, are you doing journalism or this is just political advocacy called journalism? Yeah, well, that, uh, you know, that's another uh, contradiction is this whole question of objectivity or traditional journalism versus uh, ad, ad, advocacy. And as we know, there's advocacy everywhere. I mean, that just right. can't be, you know, whether it's CNN, you've got uh, you know, or NSNBC or any of the newspapers, you know, um, they're advocating different positions, etc. And sometimes it's blatant, sometimes it's more hidden, you know. What do you think some of the answers are to this? Because, I mean, we can go the route of some kind of Politburo and to weed out what's fake news, but as we right. know from history, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> well, as you pointed out, every single attempt. Now, I was very clear 
in the 1990s what I thought the alternatives would be, that we, the people, seize the means of cultural production and do our own blogs, websites, uh, you know, projects, uh, social media, etc. And so millions of people have done that, but it just hasn't turned out like we've hoped because of you know, the fact that all these uh, sites are owned by corporate media that can bump you off if you don't play by the rules, you know? Right. And the danger, of course, is that we're being kettled into a monolithic way of thinking about pretty much everything at this point. The shocking thing to me about the gender identity industry is this. It's not just that you've got a hypermedicalization that's now extending to children where Sweden, Finland, now the UK have come out, medical professionals and, and medical boards have come out and said, this is wrong. We still need more investigation. There's been absolutely no proof to show that any of these treatments are effective or help. None. And then what's more shocking is that you have the National Union of Journalists that sends out to journalists like myself rules that you have to follow in terms of this preferred pronoun. So you've got this whole, you're being spoon-fed ideology from the top down and from the bottom up, mind you, because let's not forget like you, I was in academia until quite recently. And as you know, the new tranche of academics are at the behest of student reviews, even more so than peer reviews, which can be quite daunting. And you have to sort of kowtow to what the kids want. And now this is very strange. When I talk to colleagues back at the Université de Montréal, uh, Quebec, and they're telling me that, you know, I've had to sit through students berating me, calling me a white bitch because I'm trying to teach them about Proust. And they're saying, but why are you teaching Proust? And well, that's what the course is about. Right. Like we are sort of pandering to the lowest denominator where, as you know, in the States and to a certain degree in Canada, education has been put in this rotating wheel of must do's even though it's a really great way to create debt amongst the middle class. And, well, and we're now in this very strange world of media spectacle. So we've got all the big tech social media over here. We've got the MSNBC to CNN to Fox News Circus over there. We've got now loads of independent journalists who are doing their thing making and there's some great publications out there i started in the midst of the pandemic doug you know why i could not get one of my stories at all not even the picture gone as to the mental health fallouts from lockdown no one wanted to hear about it because and i'm quoting a good half dozen editors who said we don't want to look like we're not pro lockdown yeah so you have editors at left wing, these weren't even centrist, left wing publications afraid to talk about mental health, which as it turns out, is the elephant in the room. Right. In countries all over the EU, you've got these packages. Now the governments have been throwing out the last six months for psychiatry and psychological help. While they're not overtly saying there's a crisis, while they're not overtly reporting suicide stats, but we've got a huge fallout from lockdown and that no one's allowed to mention. And at the same time, you've got, as I mentioned earlier, the war over preferred pronouns, but let's not talk about women's rights. Let's not talk about the fact that during lockdown, women were the primary caretakers of these children that they somehow had to magically work full time and do homeschooling and right. eat and sleep, not mentioned very much at all. 
Well, it, it was in some places in progressive uh, media. I mean, I, I, I saw a lot of uh, reports on that. And, uh, you know, we have a very active feminist community here in the uh, U.S. that has a lot of access to, you know, a whole bunch of media venues, et cetera. So I, I think it's different in different uh, places. But generally, I mean, you're right in terms of the big media and what most people hear or see on their Internet feeds is controlled by corporations that very well, you know, do well, they do have biases and exclusions. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's big problem. If you're familiar with Jean Baudrillard's work on America, where he discusses Disney World, I figured as much, but there's this great scene where he says <laughs> that the only real part of Disney World is the parking lot. And that stuck with me for many years because I'm thinking these last 10 days, just finished watching several hours of it today, the funeral of the now deceased Queen Elizabeth II. And I was thinking about your use of media spectacle and your reference to Guy Debord's notion of the society of spectacle, where he describes media and consumer society that's organized around the production and consumption of images, commodities, and staged events like this. Debord also defines the society of spectacle as a phenomena of media culture that exemplifies contemporary society's basic values while also serving to, as you wrote, initiate individuals into its way of life and dramatize its controversies and struggles as well as its, as its modes of conflict resolution. And this is in the article you wrote with Richard Kahn. And the image that you two paint here seems to represent the world of media as inextricably linked to culture, knowledge, and the social, where media refracts values onto a group participation within the debates of society as replayed through major media, where the dominant state and corporate powers have attempted to monopolize not only how media is done, but how we ought to read it. And I was thinking about this today because I've been watching off and on the events when I can, when I'm cooking. And I was struck the last few days by how the narration of the funeral and all these processions are very similar to the way football is narrated. Sometimes, you know, you can tell they've got nothing to say, so they repeat or they'll say, he's wearing that jersey, David right. Beckham's lucky number or whatever. You know, and you're thinking, why are they making stuff up? And that happened today too. Now, I am not an expert on all things royal at all, but I do happen to know from my, my watching of the Queen that her Balmoral Castle was her preferred castle, blah, blah, blah. Today, they tried to say Windsor. Now, here I am, like, I'm not Miss Trivial Pursuit of Queen Elizabeth II. I'm like, wait, that's wrong. But they were ad-libbing when there was a lull when I guess there weren't enough people to comment upon at that moment. And I kept thinking, wait, they're narrating something that maybe ought not to be narrated, right? I mean, in a real procession, you just watch the bride walk down the aisle. You watch the hearse going with the car, but they were narr they were over narrating it. They were trying to convince us of something. And yeah. it reminded me of the Guy Debord spectacle of which you two wrote. Right. Well, you've seen in the last days 
the biggest advertisement for monarchy in the history of the world. It was a spectacle of monarchy. And of course they personalized it with Elizabeth, but it was really about the royals. You know, you saw this family. Now what I loved were just little minutes where there was one minute that I saw on CNN where uh, Charles was supposed to sign some document. So uh, he started to sign it and the pen didn't work and very angrily said, I don't like this pen and slammed it down and got up with a nasty look on his face. And the commentator said, well, Charles is going to have to learn, you know, from Elizabeth. You just don't do that sort of thing, you know. So um, already, already they're uh, giving him, um, you know, advice. And by the way, I think that the monarchy could be in for a big fall, that Charles and Camilla cannot live up to Elizabeth, that the media is going to, you know, sour quite quickly on this royal couple, who, by the way, they've savaged, you know, for decades. Right. You know, the tabloids, uh, you know, and I, I saw one article in The Guardian that uh, there's all it's being done on social media. You know, there's this uh, these attacks on the adulteresses, you know, um, Charles and uh, Camilla. There's still, you know, as you know, great love for Diana. So um, Camilla is seen as the homebreaker, et cetera. So they're going to have some contradictions now. But I've just been appalled by the monarchism, you know, of the uh, coverage of Elizabeth. The first day I watched it for about four hours, just because I said, you know, I came to the conclusion, yeah, Elizabeth was pretty uh, unique and remarkable and that she, you know, served for 50 years and was a good person. She was the only one of the royals that wasn't embedded in scandal, you know, one way or the other. Uh, that that family, um, you know, has um, conflicts and problems, et cetera. So I'm, I'm thinking that the spectacle of the royal and of Elizabeth, and now the spectacle of the new king and queen could raise some questions about monarchy. There's going to be ob obvious comparison. Do you get any sense of that? I mean, I, I'm only getting this from one article in The Guardian and my own, you know, speculations coming from an anti, you know, monarchy position. Right. Well, I spent five years of my life in the UK right. and I Brexited, but I understood a lot better living there the way leftist approach of people who were basically either not Republicans or they were Republicans, but still regarded her with respect. Right. And there's so many things to say about this, this funeral procession and the last 10 days, even in tandem with the way that Diana was mourned. Right. I think there's a lot to say, and this is getting back to my question about, in fact, if media is not a way of mediating culture as much as politics. It is, it is. I would say yes. Yes, because we're seeing mass mourning 
for a person that no one knew. But if you looked at yesterday, walking through the queue and asking people of all ages, even someone my daughter's age, nine-year-old boy, what did you like about her? And a lot of times these kids had no idea what they were saying because they were clearly having messages filtered to them by their surroundings, their parents, their friends. And of course, no one was going to say that bitty old hag, although I did read someone flashed her coffin. So I was, you know, immediately my ears pricked up because I thought, well, that's different, right? Because the media representation of Elizabeth II was never that balanced in these days. Now, obviously you're not expecting someone to die and then you go after the jugular. At the same time, they made this point, if you recall, when Charles was then announced as queen, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I wish, he was announced as king. And there was this moment where they said, today is not about Queen Elizabeth's death. It, it, the, the flags will be risen. It will be about Charles. Then Charles goes ahead and gives his brother, Epstein, you know, Andrew, royal duties. And I'm thinking, wait a second, <laughs> we're going to pretend that the Jeffrey Epstein debacle is now swept under the carpet. I, I'm surprised to hear that I, in the coverage I watched, you know, mostly through CNN and American uh, media really uh, kept him out. And, and they kept making, you know, comments that Andrew wasn't welcome here, you know, um, I mean, what a disgraced family, really, when you look at, um, you know, just uh, the husband of the queen of uh, just a whole lot of the, uh, the way that um, Diana was treated by the royals. And now Megan, I mean, you know, the racism evidently kicked in and made it impossible for her to, you know, live there. Uh, Etc. And also Harry, they brought them in for, you know, some of the duties, but then they kept them away, you know, from some of the funeral ceremonies and some of the, you know, visit. I, I thought it was disgusting the way the um, monarchy is uh, functioning in this uh, problematic way. So, so I'm once again, you know, strongly anti-monarch. Uh, which I suspended for Elizabeth just because, you know, she wasn't the, the bad, you know, uh, evil queen. Whereas, uh, you know, Charles and Camilla, they, they are the evil ones. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. What I find interesting about the debates around the royal family, even the issue of racism that Pierce Morgan bangs on about constantly, right. what's the famous expression that England and the U.S. are separated by a common language? It's one of those things, right? Yeah. And I have been, you know, very careful. I posted a few comments on Facebook these past days, and I've inflamed a few nerves of people who really do appreciate the royal family. And this is when, as an anthropologist, I look at it and I think, well, maybe just like Diana's funeral and the rights around her death, this too is about a certain incongruency within British culture to come to terms with one's feelings. And maybe the monarchy is necessary for people to live with the incoherence between 
the democracy they want to have and the way in which they haven't completely relinquished themselves right. of it. And at the same time, I think as an American, and I'll see comments of people on my wall on Facebook, and there can be comments that are a bit sobering, even unkind in the sense of, I think maybe there's a lot of hubris amongst our ilk where people think, okay, we're better because we don't have that, but wait a second, we have this whole other thing going on here. Going back to the point of the gender industry, we have the First Amendment. Now, ironically, despite the fact that we have the First Amendment, you have women in prison with male prisoners, and the men are there because they say they are identifying as women. You have people losing their jobs because they say men uh, have penises, women don't, and they lose their jobs in the United States and in Canada where you have more protection of freedom of speech. So there's quite a paradox where it's in the UK, where I was doing my work initially on this subject, where there's been a whole overthrow of this lobby, where now you've got a court case in the midst of being held, it's on recess for the moment until November, where you have a charity, Stonewall, that was the charity that was formed at the height of the AIDS crisis in the UK that was supposed to defend the rights of people like me, gay and lesbian men and women, but somehow has now been telling people the last 15 years, if you don't accept that a man can be a lesbian, then you're a transphobe. Completely rewashing homophobia and telling lesbians they have to sleep with men. It's incredible. So basically, there's a lobby that's been funded through Stonewall and another charity called Mermaids, which is a children's resource, let's call it. But it's a lobby for trans and kids in the UK. And that has gone to the Charity Commission and basically said that the LGB Alliance, a rather new organization that is defending the rights of lesbians and gay men and bisexuals, they shouldn't have charity status because they're transphobic. So this has been going on and it's quite interesting to see that now we've got no platforming by virtue of disagreement. So I can make a complaint about anyone because they are transphobic because they do not share my views that men can be women, that men can be pregnant, that women can have penises or that women prisoners in California or Texas should have the right to say no to men in their cells. All of this has been up for debate in the US, it still is, and it's light years behind what's happened in the UK. So I think there's a bit of a paradox in the sense that having lived in the UK, I saw a lot of the advances they made over our culture. A lot of which was because even though the hubs of Liverpool and Bristol certainly were engaged in the slave trade, they did not have slavery within their society in the same way that our country did. And I think that makes for a huge right. difference. My interest is how the media has basically given us the royal wedding all over. We're not able to see anything else. We're not able to have a debate about why that man was almost arrested the other day for saying that Prince Andrew was a pedophile. There's something really wrong about this because wasn't he supposed to go and meet with the FBI in person and somehow that got undone? I, I uh, think he just sort of left the country yeah. and that after Epstein died or suicided in whatever happened in the cell, they it was just dropped. Since Epstein's death, they wanted to speak with him and that somehow disappeared. So you've got very little media interest in this and quite paradoxically, right. Ghislaine Maxwell 
a woman. <laughs> I mean, in what world? Yes, I've, I've worked in child trafficking. There are women involved in it, but they're a drop in the bucket compared to the men for obvious reasons. It's a laugh or cry moment here. Do we fault the media for not having investigated? The fact is, is that we've got a media institution where the Hunter Biden laptop was covered properly, actually, by the New York Post that was read as fake news by Rachel Maddow and others. Turns out to not have been fake news. The New York Times ran a lot of hit pieces about this as well. And you had very little reconciliation of why certain stories decried the Post story originally, and then no apologia, no erratum formally. It's total partisanship in American media. You know, that, ex that explains everything. Um, although one argument is that the Trump children are far more criminal, you know, in their life histories and in their behaviors than Hunter uh, Biden, that he's, you know, small fry compared to the Trump uh, kids. But again, it's just partisan. You know, you'll have uh, the liberal media attacking the Trump kids. You'll have Fox attacking Hunter uh, Biden. And, uh, you know, it just depends on what their politics are, you know, what what's going to be covered in terms of, uh, you know, issues, et cetera. I don't know about the evils of Trump's kids, but I do know one thing, like, and I got people really angry at me. I just wrote this yesterday and I said, like him or hate him, in my lifetime, he's the number one president to have done the least damage in terms of starting wars, covert wars, overt wars. Say what you like about him. Say what you like about his tan, his hair, his right. repulsive racist comments. The reality is that the media isn't getting at the facts or the idea that the laptop story was supposed to be some kind of plant, you know, that he somehow was involved in this. This was, you know, early gossip along that line. Um, there, there's a real problem where we've got corporate media, and I'm thinking of the New York Times, a paper that I used to trust, now I don't as much. And the reason why I don't as much, well, let's go back to 9-11 around that time. Remember WMD, Judith Miller, she was allowed to resign for a story that now is speculated was planted to her by Condoleezza Rice and by Colin Powell. So yeah. we've got this very strange world where the dog is being wagged by whom? Where big tech, corporate media, and political machines are in bed together. Right. How is the average person supposed to understand what's happening in the world then when the one person to have raised the flag about fake news was none other than Donald Trump? I mean, like him or hate him, you know? Actually, um, you have to go with a critical uh, mind, you know, wherever you go to get your news. And I'll tell you where I've gone the last four or five years. I go first to The Guardian. That's my number one source for English language news and U.S., U.K. Uh, news. And then I go to The New York Times and The Washington Post knowing, you know, what their biases are. By the way, I have biases for The New York Times and The Washington Post because my first two jobs were I delivered <laughs> The Washington Post in Falls Church, Virginia, and then I went to Valley Stream, New York, and I delivered the Long Island paper plus the New York Times. So I read those papers 
you know, from the time I was a little uh, uh, kid, you know, and um, I just, you know, I've read all the critiques. Chomsky is our, you know, best media critic of all the media. And uh, he at one time, along with Ed Herman, did a um, bi-monthly publication called Lies of Our Times, where particularly on foreign policy, you know, the Times basically was the voice, you know, of American imperialism. And you make the point that Donald Trump was the least imperialist uh, person, that he was the guy, the only guy that he did build the military up, but he never actually used the military. And one, he hated the military, the actual guys he had to work with, and they uh, hated him. And two, he was lazy, and it takes a lot of work, you know, to do a military intervention. So I think that's why, uh, I mean, he at one point, I think in Syria, they were trying to get him to do something. But uh, basically, he just walked away with it from it, you know. Uh, and it's, again, just because he just is clueless of how to deal with the uh, military. The problem for me with The Guardian is The Guardian was given a quarter of a million dollars to cover gender identity issues, trans issues. And one thing that people are saying to me over these years that I've been covering this subject is, how is it that we went from zero to a hundred? Like all of a sudden, everywhere, even in Hollywood, you've, you've got every show has a trans character. This was implanted there was a very concerted lobby there was money spent to do this and the guardian was paid to do this in the states a quarter of a million dollars to run stories for a physical year and then you've got uh recently i don't know if you saw this that last year it was announced that the gates foundation was giving 319 million dollars of donations to various domestic and foreign outlets and amongst them CNN, The Guardian, NPR, um, PBS, Le Monde, Al Jazeera. Now, how can we trust these outlets when they're getting money from the very person who is also getting free passes every day? CNN during lockdown had him. Right. It was either him writing or him speaking. Right. And then his relationship to the whole vaccine, you know, the quote unquote vaccine, because now recent studies have shown that there are serious problems in giving this vaccine to certainly younger people and even its efficacy after 60 days. How do we deal with this when one of these pieces of $319 million, $3.6 million goes to CNN on gender inequality in developing nations? And then when you see the way the UN has interpreted what gender means, we're not necessarily talking about male, female. There's a whole, there's a whole chain here. As I used to tell my students, everything's related. Well, you've got the UN convincing NGOs, in-country NGOs, and then INGOs that gender is just like the way we formulated it in the West. So now you've even got a whole tranche of money going towards 16 year olds to 18 year olds being taught that they can too be sex workers. So now sex is a choice. It's no longer oppressive. And it's very strange how a lot of this money has been funneled to media outlets to sort of mainstream and normalize the fact that, as I said earlier, what a lot of women have pushed back in the UK successfully against that, no, saying that lesbians have a penis is just corrective rape and it's homophobia. And how this has been filtered through the general public is precisely 
not the government, it's media doing it, Doug. And I'm sort of appalled when I learned that The Guardian was given so much money to run these stories and then CNN's been given millions and NPR. It sort of makes you distrust all of these outlets. And The Washington Post, by the way, is in there as well. I mean, no one has clean hands, you know, when it comes to uh, money. I mean, if Bill Gates is going to give anyone money, they're going to take it, you know. And obviously, there's a lot of progressive foundations supporting The Guardian, right. you know, just like uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times have their uh, corporate, you know, founders or funders uh, and founders. So, so there's no nothing. There's no pure truth. Everything has a perspective, and it's a business, and it's a highly competitive uh, business. And you know, I'm just glad that you have relatively progressive voices like the Guardian, the New York Times, Washington Post, a couple cable. Well, actually, CNN is now terrible. It's gone far to the right under their new uh, ownership. Um, so we only have MSNBC, you know, it's a progressive um, outlet. True, except MSNBC has dug in its heels. It refuses to acknowledge that Russiagate was not what they claimed it was. They've also never really given in the ghost on the episodes around the Hunter Biden laptop one can be skeptical about what they present when you've got Trump derangement syndrome at the end of the day, when you've got this every day, story after story, not just them, CNN is similarly guilty of this. They just go after Donald Trump as if he's still in power. And I kept thinking, it went on for a year, it's still going on some days. Yeah, but Trump still is in power in that, you know, we had this January the 6th insurrection. He has like a mob following like we've never seen in American politics. And they're scared to death that, um, you know, he's going to run again. Uh, and that, well, he's every day out on, um, you know, campaigning for himself and for different uh, candidates. So Trump makes himself a story. I mean, and look, it's also ratings in business. For the first year of um, the Biden administration, I turned off, um, you know, the media, uh, the media. I just would watch, you know, a few minutes of news a day, just like during the eight years of Obama. I just didn't really, you know, have this intense focus on American uh, politics. You know, I was researching and interested in other uh, issues. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I see or saw Trump, just like I saw Bush Cheney, as a clear and present danger to American uh, democracy. I mean, Bush and Cheney were like warmongers and, uh, you know, just at the heart of the military industrial complex. And Trump was just, you know, a raving racist. I mean, still is. So anyway. Well, you know, this is a thing, though. I have problems in the way that we characterize his only being a racist. He's made some very, no pun intended, but off-colored comments, certainly, at the same time. He's made it also very clear that he likes people with money, no matter the color. He likes green. 
My worry isn't even Trump. Before he got into office, we had a president who was gutting reporters' rights to report the truth. Look at the silence over what's happened with Assange. Seriously. The only people who can get that message out will be places like Democracy Now!, but you're not getting a lot of coverage on Julian Assange and especially The Guardian, which benefited from his work. What's that about, Doug? I mean, we've got a paradox where the Obama administration was far worse to journalists than even the Trump or the Bush. And I don't like, I didn't like anything about what his administration, the Bush, W. Bush administration did. Right. But Obama went right after journalists. Right. Well, as I said, I just tuned out on the Obama administration. I just uh, had spent too much time on media, you know, on every day watching TV for, you know, four to six hours. And uh, I just didn't want to pursue, um, you know, the Obama presidency. What we see is that the Obama age showed true media bias at that time. We were able to sort of, I think, suss it out more so. Worse is that we've got a real problem where now we've got people like Assange and Snowden. I mean, he wasn't a journalist, but certainly the idea of releasing information into drop boxes, the idea of sharing information, Bradley Manning. Now it's all been sort of twisted as being pro-freedom, pro-protecting our soldiers or not. But it was never actually decided that any of these men put anyone in danger. It's right. been been sort of what they call uh, that telephone game that kids will play when you whisper in the ear and at the end you see what word comes out. It's called Chinese whispers in the UK, which, you know, I guess Americans would find racist. <laughs> but the idea is that media functions like that today. So you have a lot of Americans who won't even comment on Assange because in the back of their mind, they think he's committed some kind of war crime. And I worry that even though, like I used to be a, a diehard Guardian reader years ago, right. and over just that one issue of gender ideology, I saw how the Guardian was sort of pumping out lies. And I began to distrust it because of that. Then I sort of connected dots elsewhere. Then they ran a piece, this cracked me up about seven years ago. They ran a piece by this journalist at the Guardian who said, I'm going to live for a year without buying anything. But then she wrote a caveat. The one things, these are the things I have to buy. And it began with life insurance. And I just had a laugh because I thought a lot of middle-class people today can't even think of buying life insurance. Certainly not after the two and a half past years. So I kept thinking, wait, this is a person who's coming from what many of us believe to be a left-leaning paper. But what she's writing is very neoliberal. It's very right of center, I'm sorry to say, and this is coming out of The Guardian. And I began to question a lot of the stories that they ran just from the ground up, not just that story. There were others. When you mention this society of spectacle, has the media become this? How are we living in the Guy Debordian age of everything? Totally. How so? It's intensified, if uh, anything. Uh, because there's more media, there's more competition, there's more money, so there's more spectacle. I mean, this is why American uh, TV networks have completely taken over, you know, covering the Queen's uh, funeral, well, her death and her funeral. I mean, it's unbelievable how much 
CNN has uh, dedicated to, um, you know, uh, monarchy, really. Uh, so, but it's spectacle and it, 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 it gets the viewers in, it gets eyes. So whatever the spectacle is, whether it's a war, whether it's a presidential election, Donald Trump is a spectacle, okay? Uh, you know, for some of us, he's, uh, you know, a nightmare or a horse spectacle. Uh, for others, he's, you know, a positive, they love him. Uh, and for anyone, he's a, he's a spectacle because he's crazy, if nothing else. You know, it's never seen on um, TV before. So, um, again, the media goes for the spectacle, whatever it is, you know. Actually, we've had extreme uh, weather in the United States the last uh, couple weeks. And so these weather spectacles, you know, have sort of taken over the news. So uh, that that's the logic of the news. So Guy Debord was 100% right in his society as a spectacle. I mean, I took over this category, media spectacle uh, from him, and I developed it in the 1990s when we had the O.J. Simpson trial, we had the sex scandals, and we had 24-hour news coverage on these, every little tidbit, you know, uh, and it, it was like crazy. And so I saw this is a new thing. That, and then, of course, there's wars. And 9-11, you know, was one of the, and the spectacles of terror. So, uh, you know, I just started writing book after book on spectacle because that was the sort of organizing uh, principle of the news at different uh, historical periods. And, um, you know, we're still in the spectacle. You say people have to approach media with some kind of skepticism. The problem is that you have people that believe that they're reading across various points of view because they read the Washington Post or listen to MSNBC and CNN, right. etc. But the problem is that that's a very narrow scope. It is. You'll see even on the New York Times, the coverage sometimes is quite lacking in terms of objectivity around social issues. Um, I'll give you an example. Slate covered the Y-Spot incident in Los Angeles two years ago where a woman went to the main desk, filmed it, and said, there's a man in the spa with us and you gotta get him out. Mm. Anyways, long story short, you had few outlets like Slate that ran pieces saying, she faked it, the video was fake, she was lying, and that wasn't a man, it was a trans woman. Okay, long story short. Well, I was waiting for someone to investigate the investigation of Slate because it was very sloppy and you could tell when you write stories, you can spot when they're just being lazy. So a few weeks later, because I was busy with other projects, I did. I went onto Twitter in five minutes, I found a lawyer who was there getting a spa treatment and he filmed the woman filming. So you might be able to fake a video, but you can't fake a video of faking a video. Like he filmed her filming them. Right. I interviewed him, fact checked everything. Yeah, in fact, it turns out the guy that was in the spa was a sexual predator as well. And so these weren't a bunch of what the trans movement likes to call turfs, hateful women who just hate trans identified people. No, 
These were just women who didn't want a man in their space. And mind you, uh, years ago in London, there was a group of women who organized around this issue and they would go to male only swim sessions and jump in the pool with them saying, I identify as a man. So there was very interesting to find out that men, especially of a certain age, actually like being with other men and no, they don't want women around. They don't want women and they're changing areas either. So this isn't about prudish women only. This is about societal and cultural needs for being with the guys, being with the girls. Long story short, (laughs) you know, you you don't even get slate because I've pitched to them before about this issue and I get very caustic responses from the editors, right? Because they don't want to investigate. So on the side where I'm coming from, researching and writing stories, I actually launched a magazine at the throes of COVID because I couldn't actually get pitches accepted that would ask basic questions. Now that's a problem in a society that's allegedly pluralistic, democratic, that's supposed to be looking at some things objectively in media, and that wasn't possible. To now, where you've got outlets like Slate that are very happy to carry the water for a partisanship that no one really said they agreed with, but whatever. So when we're reading a paper or watching a news show, we've sort of got to be in tune to whom they're supporting, right? You'll see people saying, I don't like Jimmy Dore because, well, you know what? I don't care if I like or don't like Jimmy Dore. My question is, did he go to the facts for what he's saying? Is he stating facts or is he making stuff up? By the way, it just occurred to me that the whole discussion we've had shows why the main focus of my work has been on critical media literacy, you know, these last uh, few years, because we have to be able to read and critique and contextualize and analyze these media events, you know, be they spectacles or more, you know, minor just events, etc. Because the media is the, the arbitrator of politics, you know, culture, everyday life, uh, etc. So this this is why it's so important that people learn to have a critical perspective on the media, to understand the sources, the biases, and to be media literate. Do you remember back? It was uh, when the coffin photo was released. That woman photographer that took the picture of the American coffins draped in the flag. Right. She lost her job. Now skip to today, and that probably wouldn't have happened to her. She would have had a bunch of people screaming, you know, for her rights. But there was a certain sacrosanctity to not showing U.S. deaths in the early months of the Afghan and Iraq incursions. I I saw it as an important uh, media intervention myself. Yes, me too. You know, because uh, this is what wars bring. They bring coffins, you know, they bring dead uh, soldiers home who have mothers and, you know, lovers and friends and everything. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. But the, the George W. Bush White House brought us a very curated media. We were given, again, embedded reporting. Remember when right. uh, Al Jazeera's offices were regularly bombed? And right. all of a sudden now I just read to you that Gates donated many millions to them. By the way, I wrote a a couple books using Al Jazeera as my major uh, source. I mean, that was the best media source, you know, for Middle Eastern politics and particularly 
wars, yeah. but it was good on everything. And by the way, they disappeared it from our uh, cable, uh, you know, television sites. You know, I was I was right. getting it in Los Angeles on our cable system, and then they just disappeared it. And I like to do my research, you know, on television. I don't like to use the computer, you know, for live news coverage. Well, I remember even in the 9-11 era, I was getting my news uniquely from online and because I don't own a television. But it was very interesting to me to see the way in which in those months, just before, during, and after 9-11, that somehow comment sections disappeared. As I mentioned at the beginning, you could no longer comment. They didn't, I guess, want to employ moderators. That's very expensive and to keep the comments clean and people can't threaten each other, blah, blah, blah. So they wiped that. Then it became, okay, just intake this media and social media became the new comment section eventually. So you'd see people giving their very subjective take. But then I worry about this too, especially Twitter. I worry a lot about Twitter and even TikTok and Instagram where everything is about brevity. You can't actually have a really good discussion on Twitter. It's about one upsmanship. How much of a discussion can you have in 240 characters? The way Twitter is organized today is people are in teams. You go and you defend that person over there and you yield to that person over there. You give evidence quick Google. Okay. Here's some peer reviewed studies over there. And it's, it's exhausting. You find yourself constantly with interlocutors who are accusing you of either being the best or the worst, you know, you're Jesus, you're Hitler, or I guess Mahatma Gandhi or Hitler, take your pick. And you're always having to interact with these kinds of very bizarre valences. Right. Social media outlets are not prone to nuance or careful listening. If you catch what I'm saying. This is why I turned off on social media. You know, it's just, I, I use, you know, listservs of groups that I'm on and I write articles, books, and, you know, I just don't do that daily social media stuff just because it's too toxic. Yes, yes, absolutely. But a lot of people believe that social media is going to be here for a long time. Uh, more than half of Americans are getting their news through social media. So when the New York Post is banned by Twitter, you can no longer see the Hunter laptop Biden story. You can no longer say that you're vaccine skeptical because this vaccine was rolled out really fast, something that has been iterated by many a scientist. You can lose your account. We've instead of having this great liberation that we were told we were going to have in the 1990s with the internet, quite the opposite has happened, Doug. Right. And I worry. I worry about the psychological ramifications of people living a lot on these social media platforms and you see them and you're just like, when was the last time you left your house, <laughs> took a walk, met a real person, had a real talk. There's a great cartoon and it went like this. There's a stick figure at a computer, another stick pig figure in the bed saying, honey, come to bed. And the person on the computer says, I'll be right there. Someone's wrong on the internet. And I fear that that stands for our ethos today as a humanity, that we're using these outlets to sort of be right and not to listen, not to take in new information, not to say maybe we're not really the immunologists we thought we were, and we should listen to those guys speaking over there in the corner. And I'm thinking specifically to the Great Barrington Declarants, 
the many scientists who signed it. I even spoke to Jay Bhattacharya again. I had him on the show twice, and he was telling me how shocked he was to learn from some scientists who had signed the declaration that they had actually lost their jobs for simply signing it. It makes me really afraid, Doug, because I'm thinking, do you remember the 1990s and the early knots when we could sit down and have a discussion and disagree and still have the discussion in person? <laughs> you know? Vaguely. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean I, I've been living in bubbles, I have to say. You know, I was at the University of Texas for 25 years, but Austin was really a liberal bubble, you know, in the state of uh, Texas. So occasionally I would have right-wing uh, students or have debates with right-wing colleagues. But here in uh, Los Angeles at UCLA, you know, it's just all, um, you know, one uh, tribe, the progressives, you know. I referred earlier to Trump's derangement syndrome. Right. And what I found on uh, someone's page yesterday when I wrote, well, he started fewer wars than any president in my lifetime, so I'll give him a pass for his bad hair and his fake tan, but let's get to the real issue here, because I don't think he's the problem. I think he's the symptom. And right. I think no. when we, we start to look at what is really the problem, uh, I, I'm a very strong leftist, I think capitalism's a huge problem, and I think capitalism in, infused within media is toxic, because everything that a lot of people believe that's completely what Donald Trump or you or I might call fake news, but they believe it, it's not going away anytime soon. You've got Bill Gates and other founders pushing money into a media system that will, as we know, I mean, we know that when you push money towards just a single candidate, even an unknown candidate, that they will have a leg up to win that election. The same goes for media messages. Right. This is why we have to continually critique corporate capitalism. We need to see that as the crux of the uh, problem. Can you tell our listeners the best way to go about appropriate or maybe responsible media spectatorship and readership? What would you recommend? Well, first of all, critical. Secondly, media literate knowing what your sources are, uh, what you're seeking, what the biases, the limitations are, and getting a multiplicity of uh, points of view. But also, you have to read books. I mean, I'm a book guy, okay? I dedicated myself uh, 50 years of being a professor in state universities. So I've been teaching uh, books and reading uh, my whole life. And I still think it's important uh, if you want to know about any topic, whether it's the media or Donald Trump or uh, the Queen and the monarchy, you read the best books. That They are the ones that give you the bedrock of information that you can use to critique the media. Now, we need to watch the media to keep up with things, you know, to stay attuned to what people are thinking, debating, uh, arguing about, um, et cetera. So I'm not saying that we should be um, free of the media. Uh, and my job has been, you know, as long as I've been a professor practically, I've been a media critic. So I just took this on as part of my job, teaching, writing, 
um, analyze uh, uh, media from a critical uh, standpoint. So that's that's my um, message. Be critical, be literate, and uh, question, question, question. Thank you.